Have you ever been in an office setting facing a copier paper jam? And maybe it's a niche thing for those that have experienced copiers, but I have been there more than I wish I would have been. Uh, I've been there frantically opening trays and doors, trying to figure out where is the source of the, the jam coming from, only to find like this accordion piece of paper trapped in some sort of secret compartment to get the copier to work again. Open door one, remove tray three, close door four, and trying to get it all to, to work. Well, there's a poet, there's a poet named Malcolm Geit who experienced his own time wrestling with a copier. He was at an event uh, and making copies of his poetry uh, to disperse to the folks that were there to hear him read his poetry at the event. And as the story goes, what happened when the, the copier paper jam happened is that there was a woman who worked there who came flying out of nowhere and got into his face and shaking her finger at him said, your poetry jammed my machine. Which for him, as a poet, became this metaphor. <laughs> and he wrote a poem about it. So to start our time this morning, I want to share the poem. It's called, On Being Told My Poetry Was Found in a Broken Photocopier. Malcolm Geit. He says, my poetry is jamming your machine. It broke the photocopier, I'm to blame, with pictures copied from a world unseen. My poem is in the works, I'm on the scene. We free my verse and I confess my shame. My poetry is jamming your machine. Though you berate me with what might have been, you stop to read the poem just the same, and pictures copied from a world unseen subvert the icons on your mental screen and open windows with a whispered name. My poetry is jamming your machine. For chosen words can change the things they mean and set the once familiar world aflame with pictures copied from a world unseen. The mental props give way on which you lean. The world you see will never be the same. My poetry is jamming your machine with pictures copied from a world unseen. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. And we'll have the verses on the screen as well. But I love his imagery. I know it's weird, it's awkward, it's um, a little odd to write a poem about copy machines and paper jams. But I love the idea of words and pictures and ideas jamming the machine. And obviously, as he, he writes this poem, he flips his words and he flips the idea. He's not just talking about office equipment, but he's talking about the idea of how poetry or imagination or these ideas jam the structure of the machine and change things. Poetic disruption. Poetic imagination. Poetic dissidence. So running with this image today, maybe farther than I should run with it, but in so many ways, this is what the book of Revelation is all about. 
I know some Christians love the book of Revelation. Some people hate the book of Revelation because like that's weird, bizarre, crazy imagery, charts, graphs, timelines, beasts, end times. Like why would I read? Like I'm a, I'm a rational American in 2024. Why would I read this stuff? But the book of Revelation, as we mentioned last week for this new series that we're in, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's a message that was meant for disciples of Jesus to discover more about the lamb who was slain. And all throughout the book of Revelation, there's a contrast that's happening, a contrast of ways, a contrast of empires, a contrast of kingdoms. The way of God, the kingdom of God, set against the beastly empire of the world. And the book of Revelation is an invitation for the disciples of Jesus to live differently. To live in a way not like the world around us. In a way that is subversive. I would argue that Jesus, through John, who penned this letter, intends to jam the machine. He wants the photocopier to get jammed with images of a different way, a different king, a different kingdom, and a different hope. He wants to jam the machine of the American cultural movement. He wants to jam the machine of cable news discipleship. He wants to jam the machine of the ways in which we've grown accustomed to. And it's really subversive. For those who missed it, we're in a new series. And as this book, this last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament opens, John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, gets a vision of Jesus. In fact, the risen Lord Jesus himself shows up in a vision to John and tells him to write a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor, a fresh word for them. And so today we're going to read the the second of the seven letters. This week we get the, the letter to the church of Smyrna. You see, if you understand the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels, Jesus was born. He lived his full messianic life in calling. He died. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit was sent at Pentecost. The church was born. The followers of Jesus were commissioned to make disciples of the nations, and they spread, and the word of Jesus went far and wide. Asia, Asia Minor, Turkey, North Africa. It was not just a Jewish, Jewish Jerusalem movement. It went Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. The gospel spread. Churches were planted. People were transformed by the message of Jesus. But what happened is years transpired and decades went by. And what was thought to be just a quick sprint turns into a marathon. And life happens. And distractions happen. And uh, competing allegiances happen. And all sorts of stuff happens that, you know, you know how happens. It's life. And so now Jesus is sending a word to his church. 
Jesus is sending a message to his people. And as John says in Revelation 2 and 3, he, she, who has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit may say. There's something here for us, too. So let me read uh, what Jesus says to the church of Smyrna. Revelation 2.8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. For those who may not know, Smyrna is a small seacoast town. It's on the far west of modern-day Turkey. It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus, if you know where that is. I didn't know where that is. I'd look at a map. Where is this town? Uh, People say that it was a beautiful place, again, being on the coast. Some say it was one of the most beautiful of all these seven cities in Asia Minor. This word Smyrna, it's the Greek word for myrrh, which myrrh was the perfume made for the dead, and it was made by crushing this fragrant plant. It's actually kind of a fitting, kind of a fitting uh, word for this church, as we're going to hear what Jesus has to say. An ointment, a perfume made for the dead, processed by crushing to make something beautiful. Here's what's interesting about Jesus' words to this church, to this community. As we look through the seven letters of these seven churches, most all of them receive a word of comfort and confrontation, where he encourages them for what's going right, and he also challenges or critiques them on things that he wants to see grow or develop in them. Last week, he called out the church of Ephesus for losing their first love. What's interesting about this church community is that as Jesus comes to them and speaks to them, there is no critique. There's only two of the seven churches don't get critiqued. This one in Philadelphia. Jesus brings words of comfort and encouragement to this church. But that doesn't mean that things are easy. You see, Jesus speaking to this church He tells them that they have been, are, and will be persecuted. He says you're going to suffer. He says, in fact, there's a plan in place for some of you to get thrown in prison, and you'll be in prison for 10 days. Suffer, persecution, tribulation, difficulty. And we hear those words, we're like, thanks for the letter, Jesus. Right? 
if we get that, oh, Jesus wrote to our church, what does he say? Oh, you guys are gonna have tribulation and suffering and persecution and problems and some of you are gonna get thrown in prison for 10 days. We're like, wow, put that letter back away. I don't like that. And, and we, we hear a word like that, a letter like that, we're like, man, I'm so sorry for them. It's rough. How horrible for our, our brothers and sisters in that community. Could it be, though, that Jesus is jamming the machine? I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep using the analogy to keep the metaphor running. Today, in this section, I want to talk about the jammed, the jammer, and the command. What's being jammed? Who does the jamming? And then what's the command out of it? Let's talk about the jammed. What is, what is Jesus jamming in the machine through this letter, through these images, through these ideas that he's writing to them? Again, I mentioned this as we started. All throughout the book of Revelation, you find this contrast happening, a contrast of kingdoms, a contrast of empire, a contrast of living. John contrasts the kingdom of God, and all throughout Revelation, he uses Babylon, which was a city, but also Babylon represents something bigger. Babylon represents all those who would stand against the rule and reign of God through idolatry, immorality, independence, selfishness, all sorts of ways. But you have kind of these, this contrast, and I, I love this framing from Scott McKnight in one of his books. He says there's team lamb and there's team dragon. So he says throughout the book of Revelation, there's team lamb, that's God and the lamb, the seven spirits, the woman, the seven churches, allegiant witnesses, the four living things, the 24 elders, and all the angels that are designed for the new Jerusalem. And throughout the book of Revelation, we come back to the scene of the Lord on his throne, the lamb who was slain, the seven spirits, which is and the number of fullness and perfection of the Holy Spirit and his people and the elders. So you get the sense of those who have given their allegiance to Jesus and worship the one true God. And then you also have Team Dragon in the book of Revelation. The dragon and the beasts, all who inhabit Babylon, kings and merchants and sailors, and anyone who chooses to take the mark of the wild things or the mark of the beast. So there's, again, keeping this at a big picture level, it's like an imperial court scene. God and his kingdom, the Lord on his throne, the lamb who was slain, the spirit who is over all. And then also there's opposition of those who would build a life and a way against God. Those who would give their lives toward idolatry and immorality and infidelity to rebellion, to sin and self. And so amidst this kind of struggle and this conflict, the people of God are called to live against that kingdom, against that empire, against that system. That the disciples of Jesus are called to throw off the the way of the world, to throw off the ways of the beast, to follow Jesus, to be a people who give their life to the way of the lamb, 
that if people would ask, who are you and, and how do you live, is that we are the people of the Lamb who was slain. And He is the one who orients our life, our habits, our activities, our allegiances, that we are aligned with Him. So this idea of jamming the machine, like why would you jam a machine that seems bad? It's, it's bad when the machine gets jammed unless the machine needs to be jammed. And the book of Revelation puts these ideas and these images in a way that is trying to say the system that we so often get sucked into is not trustworthy or good, but that God has sent his son Jesus to bring about a different way of living. Okay, I know that's abstract. What, what do I mean by that? I want to name three things in this letter, in this story It's possible for us to live where our values, our assumptions, our pursuits, and our victories are more marked by the way of the world than by the way of Jesus. Here are a couple. The allurement of ease, the God of riches, and the presumption of victory. The priority of ease. Some of this is an American thing, a Western thing. But basically, with a few exceptions, in our world and culture, we live with the assumption that it's good for life to be easy, right? We operate from the assumption that we want to pursue the path, the path of least resistance. I know I do. Can you pick to have a challenging day or an easy day? Uh, easy day? We assume that the good life is the life with fewest problems and challenges, with the least amount of pain. Meaning, if you do it right, you will face less problems. And if you experience difficulty, it means you did it wrong. Right? And if you experience suffering or tribulation or persecution, it's an indication that you messed up or that you did something wrong or that you failed and therefore you don't have ease. And I'll elaborate on this more. But if ease is the priority of the good life, I'm telling you, Jesus lived a really bad life. And so any conversations for us, often in the American church, around tribulation or being slandered or suffering, imprisonment, we're like, that would be horrible. Let's do whatever we can to avoid that. And that's true if you follow the way of the empire. But even here, something's being jammed. And Jesus says, actually, you know what? You haven't done anything wrong in following me, though. You're going to experience some suffering and difficulty and challenge and tribulation. And guess what? That's going to be okay. Another thing he jams is the God of riches. Again, I don't know much about this ancient town of Smyrna. Not my field of expertise. But again, what I've read, a coastal town, it was a very wealthy town. 
A lot of emperor worship happened there. Significant amount of wealth in the city. It's an idea that travels well in our context. We're wealthy people. We live in a country with lots of wealth. And most of us, like, generally speaking, we want to be rich. Again, if you had the choice, do you want to be poor or do you want to be rich? We're like, I'll take rich. Do you want to have no money or lots of money? Um, lots of money, thanks. Like, generally speaking, that's kind of the, it's the water we swim in and the air we breathe. And we're like, wow, that person has lots of money. They have the good life. They must have done something right because when you have lots of money, then that is actually really, really good. We live in an empire that says she who dies with the most toys wins. The good life is found when you worship the God of riches. Did you read Revelation 2.9? It's a really subversive little verse. He says, I know your tribulation, this is Jesus speaking, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And then he says in quotes, but you are rich. So something's being jammed in the machine here. This, the image, you have poverty, you're poor, materially speaking, monetarily speaking, in terms of dollars and cents, paychecks and pensions, homes, food, clothing. He's like, you guys are actually really poor, but Jesus has this revolutionary imagination that says, actually, though, you are rich. He has an imagination where someone could actually have very little stuff and be abounding in riches. And most of us are like, oh, I don't, I don't know about that. Jesus is, is challenging the question, what is true rich, riches? What are, what's true poverty? It, de- it depends on which machine runs your life. But my friends, the Jesus story is not a prosperity gospel. And the way of the lamb jams our machine a lot. Probably more so than you and I will ever realize in this life. Again, (laughs) I can see you're a little uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) I'm not trying to say... That owning things is bad, having money is evil. But again, which machine, which empire is ultimate? The priority of ease, the God of riches, the presumption of victory. So so each of the seven letters ends with kind of a similar phrase, something to this effect. It says, to the one who conquers, dot, dot, dot. To the one who conquers, uh, we read last letter to the Ephesians, verse seven. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the Smyrnians, is that how you would say it? In verse 11, he says, to the one who conquers, or the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. 
key word being conquers. It's the Greek word nikao, the noun form nike. Sound familiar? It's on our shoes a lot. Nike comes from this. It's a reference of the ancient god, the victory god, the goddess. The female deity, Nike, the goddess of victory. And if you know anything about your Greco-Roman deities, she's always pictured with a palm branch in one hand with wings flying to give the victor the wreath of victory. Victory. It's the idea of overcoming, prevailing. Another idea that we as Americans have grabbed onto, right? We love to win. We want to win. I love to win. I hate to lose. I hate watching the Chicago Bears lose to the Green Bay Packers every year. I hate it. I want to win. We want to win. We want our companies to win. We want our country to win. We want to be the best. We want to overcome. We want winners. We don't like losers. We are the champions, my friend. No time for losers. Because we are the champions of the world, right? Like, that's our song. No time for losers. We're the champions of the world. We like to win. But Jesus says to the small community of people, you are and will have tribulation. And he says, you are actually going to suffer and you're, a few of you are going to end up in prison. And his word to them is, be faithful unto death. The promise that he speaks to them, he says that the one who overcomes, the one who is victorious, the one who triumphs, the conquering one, will not be hurt by the second death, which is code for the final death. First death being when your heart stops beating and your lungs stop breathing, but there's a second death. But that death won't conquer you. So be faithful, even unto death. Now, without jumping down that rabbit trail, I just want to stop and point out Jesus' promise. This is the lamb who was slain's vision of the conquering, victorious life. He says, you may die. Like, no, wait, I thought we were the conquering ones. Like, I want to win. He's like, actually, you may end up in prison. Actually, you may end up suffering. You may end up in tribulation. You may end up dying. But guess what? That's not the last word. The way of the lamb is being faithful unto death. We love to talk about the ultimate warrior and the ultimate victory, but these words jam the machine that say, actually, we may have to suffer. And there's no guarantee that life gets easy. I'm not so sure about this Jesus thing. Overcoming ultimate victory. Your goal is not to, quote, stay alive forever or avoid all pain and heartache. Your goal, your plan, your hope, your call is to stay faithful unto death. I don't know what we're signing up for here. 
Overcoming is not just fighting all of your enemies and beating them back with a sword. Overcoming is being willing to follow Jesus anywhere, even if it means suffering or dying like Jesus and trusting in his resurrection life. It's a vision of life that is bigger than death and broader in some ways. It's an upside-down kingdom because Jesus says that you may actually live and die, or some of you may die and actually live. It's a different kind of way in a different kind of kingdom. Which is why it's really important for us as like, man, he's jamming all these systems that we, we think it's about path of least resistance, the good life of ease. We think it's about getting rich. We think it's about overcoming by our own strength and will. She's just like, I think I got a different way for you. So who, who's the jammer here? Again, some of the beauty of the seven letters is that each week, with each letter, uh, each church gets a little different picture of Jesus to go with the message. Here's the picture that this church gets. This is verse 8. Two things. He's called the first and the last, and he's called the one who died and came to life. That's the image of Jesus that shows up to the church of Smyrna. He is the first and the last, and he's the one who died and came to life. The first and the last. The one who died and came to life. As one commentator put it, to live as a follower of the Lamb in Babylon, you need to keep the face of the Lamb in view. And this is a part of the face of the Lamb that we have to keep front and center in view again even this morning. Who is he? He is the first and the last. And he is the one who was dead and came back to life again. Jesus says he's the first and the last. One chapter earlier in Revelation 1.8, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty First and last, these are statements about the reach and authority of Jesus. Jesus in the span of his authority. He is first, he is last. Or if you want the Greek alphabet version, he is alpha and omega. He is A, he is Z, and everything in between. This is the Jesus who comes and offers himself to you. First and last, alpha and omega, beginning and end. Who was, who is, who is to come. Yes, we celebrate the incarnation, the enfleshment of God in human flesh who became a baby in a manger. We just finished Christmas. We celebrate baby Jesus, but this Jesus is the one who is first and last. This is the Jesus who holds all things in his hand. All authority in heaven and earth is his. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus wants to remind you again today, I am first and last. Nothing exists outside of me. All authority in heaven and earth. First and last. That's that's the Jesus. That's why he's jamming the machine. Because we are led to think that so many other things are first and last. It's like, hey, friends, riches are not first and last. Your job is not first and last. 
Not even your marriage is first and last. Your kids aren't first and last. Your hobbies, your sports teams, your shopping, your Amazon cart, none of it's first and last. It's going gonna, it's gonna to do this your entire life. And if you stake your life on the roller coaster of things that aren't first and last, you are bound for disappointment. He says, I'm first and I'm last. Empires rise and fall. Presidents come and go. Seasons of ease disappear. Wealth, stocks, Bitcoin, jobs, careers. Even human relationships that seem most stable, not first and last. Reality Church, there is one who is first and last, and his name is Jesus. He wants you to hear him again. He wants you to see him again in all of his glory, first and last. And pertinent to the message, he is the one who died. He tasted death. He was buried in the tomb. But on the third day, he rose again. And not even death holds him. First death didn't hold him. Second death doesn't hold him. And all who trust him by faith can say the same thing too. Jesus himself, his very life and story flips the empire on its head. It flips the storyline on its head. They said you must win by force. They said you were cursed if you hung on a tree. They said you must prove your innocence. They said you must rise to power, overthrow Rome by force, stand up for your rights and fight. And Jesus says, I lay down my life. He's the lamb who was slain. All throughout the book of Revelation, this is his title, the lamb who was slain. This theme runs through it. I think I put some on the screen. Revelation 1.5, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. 5.6, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. 5.12, worthy is the lamb who was slain. 7.14, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Your clothes shouldn't get white with blood, but they do. Revelation 19.13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. This is the way that God has accomplished his plan of redemption for the world. It was by laying down his life in sacrifice and facing death himself. He is the one who took the empire's best shot. He took the best shot of the world. He took the best shot of the evil one, the best shot of the beast. And he's the one who will lead the world to victory, to overcoming. He is victorious, but the way to his victory is counterintuitive. It's the way of the cross that leads to life. It's the way through death that led to resurrection. It's done through suffering and death. Jesus says, I was dead, but I'm not. I rose to life again. And so this is what Jesus says to this little church, and they're doing their best, and they're receiving slander and kickback and persecution and tribulation. They're going to get thrown into prison. It's not going well according to the way of the world. But Jesus is like, but guess what? I'm the first and the last, and I was the one who died, but I came to life again. So you can face death too. Be faithful unto death. To the persecuted, suffering church, Jesus says, good thing I'm the one who's first and last. Good thing I'm the one who died and came back to life again. 
Good thing, though, that they may end up actually killing you, just like they killed me, but the second death won't win. And I have the power of resurrection life. So what's the command? What's the commendation? As he jams the machine of the empire, Jesus ends with this, Revelation 2.10. Jesus says, do not fear. Do not fear. He says to them, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Because suffering actually isn't the worst thing imaginable. We all like, that's the worst thing imaginable. Suffering's actually not the worst thing imaginable. Suffering isn't the end of the good life. Because life is not all about the allurement of ease or the God of riches or faulty assumptions about what victory is. Because victory isn't just about getting all of your problems taken away. Victory isn't about avoiding prison or getting it easy or beating up all of your enemies and opponents in a power move. Victory is the one who overcomes the Jesus way by following the lamb who was slain into the way of the lamb, which is life. That's why Jesus tells us to count the cost. The promise of Jesus is not that your life will be perfect, not that you're going to be wealthy, healthy, wealthy, and wise, not that you're going to get the promotion necessarily or have a pain-free existence, but his promise is that you will ultimately be safe in his hands. That's the promise. That he's the first and the last. And nothing can take you out of his hand. Not even death. So maybe our machines need to be jammed. And maybe the greatest thing that Jesus has to offer is the ability to not be afraid in it all. That's why that theme keeps coming up in the scriptures. Do not fear. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Whatever you may face today. I don't know what our immediate future holds. I'm not a doomsday naysayer. I don't know the outcome of the great 2024 election. I don't know what will happen amidst the wars of the world, the challenges of our economy, the polarization in our community. But I do know this. The same risen Jesus that speaks this word to this church speaks the same word to us. You don't have to be afraid, no matter what you face. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and rose again. Be faithful unto death. Fear not. I don't know the circumstances of your life. Your job, your marriage, your kids, your situation, your mental health, your difficulties, your disappointments, your problems, or your pain. Jesus comes and offers himself to you.
to me. Let's pray. Ah, Jesus. (laughs) Your poetry is jamming our machine. And Lord, it's good. Because I'll be the first to admit that I much prefer ease. I would much prefer to be wealthy. And I would much prefer to stomp on my enemies and be victorious my way. So Lord, in that, I repent. I turn to you. I want to fix my mind and my heart. We want our church to be set on you, the one who is first and last. And Lord, I I don't know if we will ever have to face persecution like they did. Well, we want to follow you. And in the difficulties that we do walk through, Lord, we want to follow you, know you, hear from you, experience you. God, we do not want to walk in the way of the world or pretend that you don't exist or pretend that you exist on our terms. So we humbly again lay ourselves down at your feet and we, we worship you. And would you have your way among us, do as you will among us, that our lives would be in alignment with you. And Lord, I pray specifically for those this morning who may be afraid. In whatever form that takes, whatever way that anxiety shows up, I pray the peace of Jesus to meet them. Now, here I ask that we would not be afraid, but find you near and able and capable to handle it all. Meet us, we ask Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.